This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio and iTunes. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. And we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Joanna Bourne talks about combining romance, intrigue, and history in Rogue Spy. Then PW News editors Calvin Reed and Claire Swanson recap the groundbreaking controversial National Book Awards. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. And I've got a big shocker for you, Uh Mark. Number one on the fiction list. Stephen King, who no, could have predicted that? No, no, no. <laughs> this, this, this little-known debut. Uh, no, no. Uh, Stephen King is once again very, very predictably at the top of the hardcover fiction bestseller list with Revival. We gave it a starred review, said it is a spellbinding supernatural thriller. King is obviously uh, the grandmaster of horror and mystery. Uh, he's he's uh, a well-known author for, for many, many, many Many years. He's probably been writing thirty years, yeah. something like that. Um, and he's he's still got it. Uh, I've I've been seeing very good reviews for this from uh, my my horror friends as really? well. Um, so it's uh, it's doing very well. So uh, it it chronicles one man's efforts to tap into the secrets of the universe, as the narrator puts it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's about uh, a minister who uh, loses his faith but uh, retains his obsessive interest in electricity. Uh, and uh, there's there's this big crackling lightning bolt all the, all over the front cover of the book that that gives it this very sort of Nikolai Tesla vibe. Mm, right. you know, can you can you harness the lightning? And of course, there is a supernatural element in this case. Uh, and we say that King is a master at invoking the supernatural through the powerful emotions of his characters and his depiction of Jacobs as a man unhinged by grief but driven by insatiable scientific curiosity is as believable as it is. For frightening and the novel's ending one of king's best stuns like lightning wow so a rave review there and uh my my feeling as a as a king fan from way way back mm-hmm. is that I, I i feel like hardly anyone ever talks about this his books are all about love they're they're about love and oft, often about grief also um and if you look at a, a book like Lisey's story which is just a meditation on what what it's like to lose a spouse mm-hmm. but um so so many themes of love subtle or or overt if you even the the really supernatural books like it or needful things um it is it is all about love against the darkness wow over and over again you know it's funny i just um over uh halloween just and and i know he doesn't like the movie version of it but i did the shining i did Mm -hmm. watch it Mm -hmm. and i see the character the mother and the son as kind of love against is just you said this dark being and and it's uh her son that kind of empowers her to to get away from the jack nicholson character right and and because i think king believes so much in love that Mm -hmm. love is so powerful that then he can make the darkness very powerful because he has love to stand against Mm. it so it, it sounds like you know that that's an underlying theme here too in this case you know love and loss love and grief mm-hmm. which is a perennial king theme um but just the power of that and this one i see is set in maine i wonder how many of his books are set in maine I mean, Al- it seems almost set- all of them are they yeah i yeah. mean dumaki went down to florida but mm-hmm. um maine comes up again and again and again where i i guess you you write what you know but you right. you've got all those dark woods there's a right. lot of right horror potential there so that's at number one on our hardcover fiction list um, just a little bit below it, number three is Flesh and Blood by mm-hmm. Patricia Cornwell, um, another perennial bestseller. This is her 22nd novel featuring Dr. K. Scarpetta. Uh, I think that's a name wow. I've been hearing since I was growing up. So uh, Yeah, sure. And we've talked about her novels while we've been doing this show as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. Scarpetta mm-hmm. keeps coming up. Yeah. And uh, this time, uh, the chief medical examiner is pitted against a threat that's uncomfortably close to home. Uh, and she's 
there are some similarities between a fatal shooting victim in Massachusetts uh, with uh, tooth shooting deaths in New Jersey, mm. uh, with, uh, where the killer handcrafts the bullets, apparently. And it, it fascinating little forensic touch. Um, and so the hunt is on. It goes from Cambridge, Massachusetts, to the murky waters off the coast of Florida. Mm. And we, we have a little hint here at the end of the, the PW review, maybe not quite a spoiler, but we say that series fans may be pleasantly shocked by the return of a once vanquished nemesis. So that's the sort of rumor that gets people grabbing the book. Um, right. Sold very well for its, uh, its first week out, 27,000 mm-hmm. copies. Of course, King... What was sold King? like eighty nine thousand, yeah. <laughs> uh, but you know, King is really in a in a class of his own. And uh, finally, a little bit further down the list, at number eight is Blue Labyrinth by Douglas J. Preston and Lincoln Child. Um, we say that this thriller is uh, uneven, mm-hmm. um, but it gets off to a dramatic start. It's the 14th in their series featuring Aloysius Pendergast, which is just such a fun name to say. Uh, he's an eccentric FBI agent. And uh, this is another thriller that uh, requires a lot of uh, frequent flyer miles or maybe mm-hmm. earns some. It goes to California and New York. Um, and uh, you know, it's, you say it's less creepy and less suspenseful than the best entries in the series. And it also suffers from unimaginative explanations hmm. for the two okay. central crimes. So, you know, one for the fans. Sure. Yeah. So what's happening over in the world of well, nonfiction? We've got a new number one, uh, and this is 41, A Portrait of My Father by George W. Bush. Um, th- and this is uh, George W. Bush, who's the 43rd president of the U.S., uh, is writing about his uh, father, George H. Bush, who is the 41st president, thus the title of the book, 41. Mm-hmm. Um, we did not get this book in time for review, but I'm sure one is in the works. Uh, it's been in the news quite a bit, um, understandably, and uh, the book has sold 83,000 copies so far uh, this last week. Okay. So, uh, pretty respectable. And uh, so, let's go into another notable personality, though, in the uh, 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 in the comedy pipe, pop icon uh, field. This is Andy Cohen Diaries, A Deep Look at a Shallow Year. Uh, this is at number seven. Uh, he's a TV producer um, and host of the smash you know, late night show, Watch What Happens Live. Um, and so, he, he talks about everything from uh, Andy Warhol to uh, 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 being obsessed with uh, uh, the, uh, real, becomes a, a codependent with Real Housewives, making trouble, calls his mom, drops some more names, and uh, it's just it's just pretty witty. Um, uh-huh. It's a big book, and um, I, I love the title: "A Deep Look at a Shallow Year." <laughs> so, <laughs> a snark from the very beginning. Right, exactly. Uh, number nine, "No Hero: The Evolution of a Navy Seal" by Mark Owen. Um, he uh, he he also wrote No Easy Day in 2012, uh, and uh, he talks about his experience. Um, uh, he offers a first-person account of, of the killing of Osama bin Laden, and uh, like I said, that's at number nine. Mm-hmm. Um, going down the list a little bit further is at number 11, Anne Lamott. We know from the help. Uh, thanks. Wow. Uh, small victories, spotting improbable moments of grace. Uh, and this is an essay collection that tackles tough subjects with sensitive and unblinking honesty. Um, uh, so, and this is, uh, like I said, this is just published. So number 11, and uh, that's pretty much all we have uh, on the nonfiction list. So I'm, I'm really actually surprised that the cookbooks are not creeping up there for the most part uh, I mean you know, probably still with Ina Garten on on the list but uh, uh, and yeah, looking at it yeah she's you know, down to number three but still there but you know Thanksgiving is just around the corner at this point yeah do we just not see those books until Christmas um, the, the cookbooks yes the uh, the uh, uh, there haven't been many Thanksgiving books uh, this year any if any that I've seen so we will probably start seeing some cookbooks uh, we'll probably start reporting on them right after Christmas I think I think now right is the time right after the, I'm sorry right after Thanksgiving mm-hmm. yeah exactly so we'll probably start seeing some of those uh, especially some of the more holiday ones, but um, yeah, uh, and we had a uh, very interesting uh, piece that uh, 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 
Carolyn did uh, on our bestseller, the, the beginning of the book, the front of the book on uh, all the big cookbooks that are coming out by celebrity chefs and how they've fared with previous ones. So we look at Ina Garden, Mario Batali, and several others. So that's that's a great thing. Uh, she's been doing a great job on the best on the bestsellers that come out on Monday. Interesting. Yeah. All right, so uh, we'll definitely keep an eye on the the forthcoming issue for that. Yes, exactly. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Joanna Byrne tells us how spies fall in love. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Scott Ian, author of I'm the Man, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Joanna Bourne on the line. Her new book is Rogue Spy. Hi, Joe. So glad you could join us. Hi, Mark. Glad to be here. So your newest book in the Spy Master series is Rogue Spy. Tell us about the main character, Thomas Paxton, or as he's called, Pax. Yes, Thomas Paxton. You know, I have this broad array of characters. It's built around a set of spies that live in London in Regency, England. Pax is one of these spies, and he's a traitor. He's been trained by the French. He has been placed as a sleeper agent inside the British Intelligence Service. And he has betrayed all of his friends and betrayed England. That's where the story begins. So you set this up a little bit in your in your previous books. Can you just give us a sense of the series for people who aren't familiar with it? Okay, I've got five books, all set in the same place in time, all of them uh, British spies and French spies. Uh, this the the whole Napoleonic conflict, the French Revolution. This was a war about ideals not about territorial gains. It was a war where people on both sides could be men and women of goodwill. So we have French spies, and we have British spies, and we have Pax, who's a little bit of an outlier. He's Danish. Mm. Uh, He's been placed in the British service uh, when he was a child, about 14 years old, They nipped him into the British service as the son of a British service agent. He's been inside this organization. And we've gone through five books where we'll mention Pax in the background doing this, Pax being friends with the other characters. Then in the last book, Black Hawk, in the midst of Hawker, Adrian's story, there's Pax. And he gets exposed as a trained French agent. And we have it there as a little bit of that other story. And then we zip right in in Paxton's book, Rogue Spy. And there he is, exposed as a French agent. And because of who he is, because of the kind of man that Pax is, a totally honorable man, uh, you could even say he's... he's uh, He's kind of angsty. He's tortured Mm -hmm. with the various things that he's done. Uh, He heads back to England to see the head of his agency and confess. So that's where we start. And we have, on the one hand, the British service dealing with this man that they've known for 10 years as a friend. And on the other hand, his need to atone for what he's done to solve the problem that he has made. And he's also got this girlfriend who showed up, this love of his life. So let's, let's talk about Camille, because uh, she, she has some things in common with Pax. Yes. Both my hero and heroine in this book were trained by the French in a school that trained French children to be sleeper agents in England. This is what you might call all made up. <laughs> no, this is, this is why they call it fiction. And I have actually had people write me and say, where was the coach house? You know, how did this really happen? How come I haven't found any references to this? It's because it's fiction. So these two people, my hero and my heroine, my protagonists, knew each other 10 years before. And because this was kind of 
Think of Hogwarts run by sadists. This was a school that attempted to not bring out the best in the students, but rather to make them obedient servants to the French Revolution, to the Committee of Public Safety. So here these are, two kids, really bad situation at school. You've got to think, really, the worst school you could imagine, and that's where they are. And then they get placed in England separately. They don't know where they are. And they are both, as it happens, placed close to the British Intelligence Service. She, as a code maker and code breaker, with two little old women who do all the coding for the British Intelligence Service and other government associations, and he, right in the middle of the most active of all of the agents, the people who go out and do subterfuge and sneakiness. And they meet. Neither of them knows whether the other is still loyal to France. So right from the beginning, we have all these possibilities for misunderstanding. And when they knew each other before, they were like 12 and 14. And they were not so much interested in one another in a sexual sense, but when they meet at 22 and 24, they are. So that is another sort of interesting part that's thrown into the story. And I'm writing, you know, historical romance. So, you know, they get it on. <laughs> so so you, we've talked about Pax. We've talked about Camille. And, and let's talk about another kind of character in your book. It's a pretty big one, uh, as it were. And that's the, the French Revolution. Um, what, what draws you to this period and, and, and the years after it? Well, you know, mostly in historical romance, when people write about the Regency, they are writing about the good British guys. They are writing about, you know, the heroic British, sometimes spies, sometimes soldiers. And, of course, these are wonderful people to write about. But one of the things that people overlook in this period is that at this time, the United States and England were at war. They were not our allies. The French were the good guys. And we don't see enough of this, the French were the good guys. The French had all the good lines. <laughs> oh, what can I say? They took the, the inherited property away from all of these frivolous people, French aristocrats. They didn't actually kill as many of them as you'd think. Most of them were just left alone. But that's one of these historical quibbles. In terms of somebody reading the book, what I'm trying to build is a sense that, as I said, strong feelings on both sides, idealism. This was a, a war where the French considered themselves entirely in the right. Even as they went out, you know, conquered Europe, they saw themselves as, we're saving these societies. We're going to go in there and we're going to allow freedom of worship. Mm -hmm. Yes, wild things like that. You could be a Catholic, a Protestant, a Jew. You could be an atheist. And the government didn't come after you for it, which was not true in England. They said, we're going to give everybody an education. They don't have to pay for it. We're going to give them a free education. You know where else they did that? Nowhere. They said, we're going to have universal manhood suffrage. You know where else they had universal manhood suffrage? I think maybe Iceland. <laughs> <laughs> the French are in many ways admirable. In many ways, they're in the right. And I'm trying to show this as my characters, my uh, English, uh, yeah, I think they're all English, my English uh, spies and my French spies confront each other. It is not with an overwhelming sense that one side is correct. It's a matter of coordinating many beliefs and making it come out right. So most Regency romances focus on the upper classes, on what happens in ballrooms and, and fancy dresses and fancy carriages and so on. What led you to break away from that and write about soldiers, spies, and smugglers? <laughs> Well, for one thing, the ballrooms have been done. 
There are lots and lots and lots of things out there. If you want to read lighthearted romps, and these are beautiful books, and I love reading them myself. But uh, I think in romance genre these days, I think we're trying to open up new places, new times. Uh, you know, Tang Dynasty, uh, the the future, werewolves. We're we're moving out of what was a very constrained environment. So my own particular move out of the constrained environment was that my guys are not gentlemen spies. Not really, no. Uh, as a matter of fact, the character who is most popular in this series is someone who was born in the slums of London and over a 20-year period became head of the whole shebang. I'm trying to make it so that that's plausible. And I've spent five books trying to make it plausible that these guys would fit into British society at this time, be able to operate there, but not come from the extremely rich cream on the top of the society. I actually find regular people, people who would be middle class, if you could apply that exact term to the times, I find them very interesting. I'm much more sympathetic to somebody who is out working and doing stuff than with someone who is I don't I don't care much for the extremely rich in 21st century America so why would I care for them in 1812 <laughs> and I guess having a character that that is working gives you gives you yourself a little more to work with uh, in complexity and depth for for these characters yes and I think it's also more plausible mm-hmm Many spies, I'm going to say this, and this sounds as though it's criticizing other writers, but it's not, because I really, really like the books I'm about to criticize. Many books that are writing about Napoleonic spies, British spies in this era, are writing about, he's the younger son of a duke, and he's, you know, about to inherit the dukedom, but he runs off and becomes a spy. No! <laughs> that would okay, that would no, just never happen. I don't see this. Uh, I don't find this entirely plausible. So it's it would be difficult for me to write that. And also the kind of person who grew up among great wealth, who grew up in a position in society where they were not contradicted, where they had all of that wealth and power behind them. I mean, like, less than, I, there were like 100 families who owned 90% of the country. It's, it's just the vast disparity of wealth. I don't see someone coming from that environment, able to go sneaking through an alley in Paris, you know, stepping over dead cats and things. I, I don't see this. I do see it from someone who came from the slums of London or someone who was a yeoman's son and in the army. I could see that. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Joanna Bourne, who's the author of Rogue Spy and is telling us about who could or could not be a spy in uh, Regency England post-Revolution France and why. Um, so, Joanna, when I was reading the book, which I enjoyed very much, by the way, uh, I I kept thinking that these characters were basically superheroes. When when you, when you have the the cachets, the, the Pax and Camille who were raised in this in this school and trained up from a very young age, they have these almost supernatural abilities of of stealth and you know they they can sneak past anyone, they can break into anywhere, uh, and it's it's really enjoyable watching them come up against each other because it's like you know when a superhero faces a supervillain, it's the only person 
person who could take him down. Uh, so did did you ever feel that way when you were writing this? Did you have to, to figure out just how close you could get to the edge of plausibility in when you were developing what, what these super spies can and can't do? When you put plausibility and historical romance in the same sentence, <laughs> you, you wow. are always on just the edge of things there. If I were writing historical fiction, I would not have my characters do this, you know, climbing up the sides of buildings. No, I would not have them do that. But this is historical romance. I have a get-out-of-jail plausibility card. I get to play this because of my genre. Uh, in historical romance, heroines are always dressing in boys' clothes and climbing down the drain pipe and, you know, riding off in a horse that they just happen to have been able to steal from the stable because, of course, the Earl has many horses in the stable and people can just walk off with them all the time. I'm, I'm in a milieu where I do not have to necessarily be exactly plausible and historically correct. Sure. Why am I putting in these people who are, as you say, superhuman? Um, if you were a wildly fanatic French revolutionary, and remember, we've got a revolution going on, people are dying, there's a war, shooting war going on, and the whole thing is there because people have been starving to death for the last two years because of really bad winters. And you are there, and you can pick out of this entire country any 12-year-old you want. You're going to pick very smart 12-year-olds. You're going to go around to the orphanages, you're going to round people up from the streets, and you're going to pick the very, very best they are. So your cachets, even before they start being trained, are going to be special people. They will have picked people who already speak a couple of languages, who are beautiful, who are intelligent. And you take these people, you put them in a school, you take maybe a quarter, a half of them out and eliminate them during the training, and you're going to end up with kind of the equivalent of Navy SEALs. Right. These people have been selected from a huge pool of competent people. See, I have all of these excuses that I can make up. I can, I can justify my choices. No, they're, they're great justifications. I think you should be writing superhero comics. I've, I feel that that should be the, the next place you go. So you seem to be very tuned into the needs of writers who are trying to break into romance. You have what seems to be a pretty comprehensive list of advice on your website. Uh, how did you break in, and what's your advice, what are your recommendations for new authors? I break in twice. This sounds as if I'm a burglar coming back to the <laughs> house to pick up all the silver I didn't get the first time. I broke in twice, once in 1982. I was at home with a toddler, and I had always said to myself, oh, I want to be at home with a baby toddler, little cute, cuddly, and then I did it. And I just about went crazy. So I wrote a book. And if you read the history of a whole bunch of writers, you know, start with Nora Roberts and people like this, a lot of them wrote their very first fiction when they were at home with a small child. As a matter of fact, this would, you know, these people who say we should be supporting our literary authors by giving them money. No, you should be supporting them by giving them a small child to take care of. <laughs> Not child them. care, but to give them the children. <laughs> a little hard on, no, no. Kids love mothers who spend their time sitting and staring at the typewriter. Absolutely love them. So there I was. And I didn't actually know how to submit a book. I didn't, I mean, I had heard of literary agents, but, you know, I knew nothing. This was before the Internet. Mm -hmm. This was before Romance Writers of America. So I said, hey, I know how to apply. I sent them a query letter. I'd heard of a query letter. Sent them a query letter saying, hi, I finished this book, and it has this many words in it, and, I, you know, let me know if you're interested in it. And that was all I said. 
uh, nowadays people sit around and worry about queries and spend six weeks writing their query letter, which is one page. I just sent that in, and I sent them three chapters. Uh, I think it was chapter 6, chapter 18, chapter 23, <laughs> because I really liked those chapters. But I sent it to Avon, and I think at the public publishing houses, I think when they get really cute query letters that, you know, don't obey the rules and don't send in the first three chapters, that they pass them around and giggle over them. And after all these years, I can hear these editors passing this around and guafaing. So they bought it. <laughs> and I sent it to Avon because I was doing it alphabetically. So they bought it. They published it. And then, of course, I went back to work and never read another one for all the time I was at work, being very busy at work and raising kids. Then... The kids grew up and went away, and I, you know, retired. Mm. And I said to myself, what shall I do? This is the preparation for, you know, the next break-in. What shall I do? I think I'll write fiction. The first fiction, the first book I wrote, was really awful. I have recently self-published it so that people who like the other books will go and buy it very cheaply and discover that it is awful <laughs> rather than going out and spending like 30 or $40 for a used copy, 20 years old, and after 30 or $40 discovering that it's awful. Discoverability cheap. So I wrote a book. I said, gee, I think I'll write about Napoleonic spies because it fits into the time period, which is very, very popular, and I kind of like the idea of spies and, you know, of clashing ideals of an important time in the history of uh, philosophy, of all of the things that we believe today about how people should be ruled, about government, about human rights. All of these things come out of that time period. All of these things they tried out in France when they weren't chopping people's heads off. So it's a really cool philosophical place to put your story. So I put my story there. And I got an agent. This time I knew how to go about it. And I, you know, I was just really systematic. And I went into all of the books and read everything and Googled everybody. Picked out the people I wanted to apply to. Took the first five. Sent them out. And one of them said yes. So I went to her. That's Pam Hopkins. And she tried very, very hard to sell my book. And there were at that time six big print publishers in New York. And she sent it out to these six. And every one of them said, no, uh, we don't want to print anything that takes place in France. Hmm. Well, they didn't all say that. One of them said, you see, my POV character there, Anique, it's a French woman. And so when we are in her POV, her point of view, she has very French uh, choice of words, and they're all lined up in a very French manner. So one of the companies, forever unnamed, uh, wrote back and said, is this writer a native English speaker? I particularly enjoyed that refusal. I certainly when when I when I read that book I thought you must have spent a lot of time in France because the the dialogue felt translated rather than written in English. Yes, actually a lot of it I thought through in French and then translated it into mm. English. I'd lived in Paris for 6 or 7 years. So, there I am this this poor striving artist you can think of me, you know, in a garret somewhere, although actually I was living in a very nice middle-class suburban house. But think of me in a garret because I was in a mental garret. And so I said, I'll write another book, and I'll set this bloody book in England, in London. So that was the second book that I wrote, while the first book was being, you know, dominoed down, thump, 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 all of them down, gone. But I had an agent. And whenever anybody says, I don't need an agent, I think about what my agent did for me. And that is, 
she knew the exact editor who was moving from one house to another and would arrive there some morning with an empty desk. Uh Uh-huh. And my agent said, well, we'll fix that and zip the manuscript over to her. Uh, This was Wendy McCurdy, who is still my editor. And Wendy McCurdy liked it, and she was able to get Berkeley behind her and get it published. It's still... These are... These are not easy things. Uh, You don't just zip onto a bestseller list. You you write as well as you can, and you sell a certain number of them. I hope that I am profitable for Berkeley, uh, because that way they'll keep buying my manuscripts. And that's it. That's how I got in. And Berkeley has been willing to publish the uh, books after that, five of them. So tell us about being part of the community of romance writers. Who helped you uh, when you were just starting out, or or who did you look up to? Mm, This is cool. Um, Romance people are really, really nice to each other on the whole. They're just wonderful people. Uh, Key people, free people, uh, there's an uh, a blog called Word Wenches, which is, oh dear, I'm going to forget somebody here. Uh, Mary Jo Putney, mm-hmm. Joe Beverly, Anne Gracie, Nicola Cornick, uh, Pat Rice, Kara Elliott, and I've missed somebody. But we're just going to go right past that, and I'll apologize later. They really helped me. They invited me to be part of this blog, and they have encouraged and supported me this whole time. Uh, Over the last couple of years, I've had some great support from Grace Burroughs, the selling person who writes in my same era. Uh, Courtney Milan, who's a fusion writer, does a lot of indie work. Uh, Isabel Carr, again, another indie writer. That's, that's where all the cool kids are. They're over there in indie. Um, hmm, who else? Uh, I, I think Jeannie Lin, who is writing in uh, Asian steampunk right now, has also been very supportive. She was a, a guest on the show, actually, this, this past February for Valentine's Day. She's great. Yes. She has been very supportive of my work and, and says she likes it. Uh, Kristen Higgins, Christina Dodd, all of these people have not so much said, you should write this way or you should write that way, but have said, at a girl. And there are times when what you need is, at a girl, and a pat on the back. And it seems... Like intern, as as Rose had mentioned before, you've been kind of giving others pats on backs and encouraging them to write. Notice on your uh, website, you have quite a bit of information uh, and pretty detailed information on uh, how to get started writing and pitfalls to avoid within writing. I like to teach. It It is probably related to the storyteller's art. Um, if you put something in front of me, like, say, a cabbage or a person, I will immediately start talking to them, telling them stories, giving them advice. I believe the technical term is yenta. Uh, <laughs> I, I do my best to help other people out. I enjoy writing. I enjoy looking at somebody who is a good writer and has some small problem and helping them out with that. As I say, giving advice feels good. I like it. So uh, I'm, I'm going to ask you for a bit of advice myself. I've been thinking about writing a historical romance novel, but uh, I'm, I'm very worried that I'm going to get so bogged down in research that I never actually write. So do, do you ever get into that kind of rut? And if you do, how do you get yourself out of it? This is a job for square brackets. As you're writing along, as you are inside the character and walking around, looking through the character's eyes and seeing the character's world and feeling in your guts the character's feelings. This movement of the character through your story is what's important. 
the reader doesn't care whether it's a Heppel White dresser or whether it's a Chippendale dresser or whatever it is. The reader doesn't care. All of that stuff is not important to the reader. The reader is interested in the guts and the feelings and thoughts of the character. And you can put those in without knowing what the bureaus would look like or whether there was a rug on the floor or wood. That can come later. You ride along and you say, and Lady Jane walked through the room, her heels clicking on the wood floor. And then you put in a little bracket and say, wood? Question mark? And you close the bracket. And probably by the time you're through with the manuscript, you will somewhere, somehow, in your daily fun reading, which of course will be, you know, things that are the uh, documents of the period, contemporary works, diaries, journals, letters. Mm-hmm. While you're reading all that, somebody will say, and I clicked across the wood floor on the way through the parlor. Pictures. Pictures. That's the place to do research. Contemporary pictures will tell you what it looked like, and you can keep all of them. And I love Google. I just love all of the information storage we have now. You can have 2,000 pictures of period rooms, and you will know where they put the lamps, if there were candles, what the floor looked like, how high the ceilings were. Did the windows go up and down, or did they open as casements in that area? And you know because there's pictures. So just write the story and do the research afterwards. That's excellent advice. Thank you very much. I will uh, I will tuck that away. I'll probably write out this is a job for square brackets and just put it on the wall over my desk. <laughs> We've been talking with Joanna Byrne. You can find her book Rogue Spy in stores right now. Joe, thank you so much for joining us. Glad to be there. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW News Editor Claire Swanson takes us to the National Book Awards. Stay tuned. Hi, this is Michaela the Prince, and I'm the author of Taking Flight, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week, we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. And today, PW News Editor Claire Swanson and Senior News Editor Calvin Reed are here to tell us all about the National Book Awards. Hello, Claire. Hello, Calvin. Hi, Hi there. Hi. Thanks for having us. It's very, very good to have you here. Um, so, Claire, you, you wrote up the uh, awards for us. Can you just quickly recap um, who won and what they won for? And this is, this is a big deal, this award. Yes, it is. It's probably one of the most prestigious in American literature. So the first one went to uh, Jacqueline Woodson for Brown Girl Dreaming, which was published by Penguin, uh, Nancy Paulson Books. The second was for Louise Glick for Poetry, for Faithful and Virtuous Night. It's an FSG book. Evan Osnos for Age of Ambition took home the nonfiction prize, also an FSG book. And the Fiction Award went to Phil Clay for his uh, debut short story collection, Redeployment, which is by the published by Penguin Press. Mm-hmm. And uh, the the MC Daniel Handler uh, made some remarks that I think some people have taken issue with. And Calvin, I know you're yeah. you're, you're working yeah. on a story about that right now. Yes. Well, as a matter of fact, he did. Uh, It's unfortunate. I think actually, if you ask most people about the ceremony last night, Handler actually did a great job. Um, But there was about, you know, a short period of time where he made some comments that, you know, passed through sort of in the hall. But really, um, the the ceremony, the National Book Award ceremony was being live webcast, you know, around the country. And it was, uh, you know, people were live tweeting it as well. And he made comments um, about what he said was a conversation between him and Jacqueline Woodson, wherein he found out that she was apparently or supposedly allergic to watermelon. Now, this is just after she received uh, the award. Uh, He brought it up. He made a joke about it, uh, something to the effect uh, that in an earlier conversation, he had predicted she would win. And that, you know, if she won, he was going to mention that, mention this allergy. And he said, uh, as he told the story, that, you know, you should write a book about it. And she told him, well, maybe you should write a book about it. And then he uh, made another joke to the effect that 
uh, I'm not going to write a book like that unless you know I got the uh, you know the go ahead from Barack Obama, Toni Morrison, and and right. um, you know a long you know a long list of prominent black intellectuals. So uh, you know he made the joke a lame one uh, and moved on to other topics. But Twitter apparently um, picked it up. Obviously, there was a webcast going on as well, and people were outraged and very unhappy with it. Uh, you know, he also issued an apology this morning. Do we have any sense of um, how Woodson herself reacted in the you moment know, or, or after? We've been trying uh, to reach her. Um, we have not as yet, uh, which wouldn't surprise me. I'm sure this is the last thing she wants to be I'm responding sure. to after winning, uh, you know, the preeminent, you know, American award uh, in your particular writing field. So she has not gotten back to us now. Um, I've been told that she is on uh, traveling. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, as I said, uh, uh, Handler uh, issued an apology this morning uh, for ill-conceived humor and uh, said he was very sorry he'd said it. So um, let, let's take a moment to move into an alternate timeline where Handler didn't make any off-color remarks at all. <laughs> yeah. um, and, well. we can, and we can just focus on the winners. Tell, tell, tell us a little bit, um, Claire, about Woodson and her book. Uh, so it is a memoir in verse of her childhood and she sort of, um, well, first of all, which was, I mean, really nice. She said, and this is a quote from her. It's very difficult. No, she said, um, it's, um, it's just nice to see how much love there was in the room for, Mm -hmm. um, young adults and children's literature and, you know, how much respect it was getting and how much people were talking about it. And then, you know, speaking to her book, which is, you know, about her family, she said that it was so important that we talk to, the old, to old people to get their stories before they become ancestors, um, which was really nice. Speaking of uh, people who, who are on the older end of things, I hope she'd forgive me for saying this. Um, the, the Medal for Distinguished Contribution to American oh, yes. Letters yes, went to yeah. Ursula Le Guin, who has been yes. one of my heroes for a very long time. Um, and I'm told mm-hmm. she gave a, a great speech. Indeed, she did. She um, did not mince words yes. on this speech. And she called uh-huh. a few people out. Yeah. <laughs> really? So, so, so what did she say? Calvin, can you, and you were there. Can well, you, I mean, uh, she, she, she sort of, I mean, obviously, we, we, we um, I think we had. We're, we were looking for references to Amazon, certainly throughout the evening, and, and among uh, other things that she said, she did point out, uh, you know, the uh, writers were sort of under siege from uh, profiteers, uh, which seemed to be referring to Amazon, uh, and and corporate dictates. I wasn't sure whether that was Amazon as well or or to the publishing side, hmm. um, but but even more importantly, I think she uh, she equated writing with freedom. And she equated uh, also, I think she said that we need to make sure that we get a fair share of the proceeds from our writing. And the proceeds are not called profit. They're called freedom. Wow. So uh, you can imagine the uh, ovation that ensued. I'm, uh, I'm yeah. sure. Yeah. yeah. And it, 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 didn't, it didn't villainize Amazon and lionize publishers either, I don't feel. Like she was just, it was, felt like a, a call to action to writers to to not become commodities, which is a word that she yes. used throughout her yeah. speech. I, um, I think you're right, too, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and we shouldn't we shouldn't leave out the Literary Award also. Absolutely, go yeah. for it. Uh, the Literary Award went to um, uh, Kyle Zimmer. She's the president and CEO of First Book, which I know delivers books to low-income uh, kids all over the, the country, and it's apparently a really... That has done an amazing job of getting books in the hands of kids, and uh, and and that's the important thing. I think when um, there are charities of that sort who basically have the job of translating money into actual books in the hands of actual children, it can be quite a challenge. You know, there mm-hmm. there are lots of theories about, it, but it's it's still hard to make that delivery. So they they really deliver. Yes, yes, no, absolutely. She's been cited by many, you know, mm-hmm. for her work in getting books in front of kids. So um, tell me a little bit more about the the poetry nominees and the poetry winner, Claire, because uh, that's not a world that I know a whole lot about. Yeah, well, uh, Louise Glick, she, this is the, well, she's been a non-finalist three times before. So mm-hmm. she said, you know, it's very difficult to lose, but it's also very difficult to win because she felt so humbled by everyone else in the category. I mean, she is a Pulitzer Prize winner, U- former U.S. Poet Laureate. So it, it felt like... I mean, it was really great to see her step up. And she said she was astonished and, and she looked visibly moved. Don't you agree? Calvin? Oh, absolutely. She, absolutely. Yeah. And um, I, I, we, I, we should point out that uh, Daniel Handler uh, quoted, uh, if I'm not mistaken, from one of her poems uh, from memory. Yes, he did. And, yeah. Yep. Uh, and 
uh, obviously indicating he was a big fan and that uh, he was happy to see her her win as well. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. No, she was very moving in, in her acceptance speech as well. Um, we, we, uh, we've talked with Phil Clay here on, on the show uh, about redeployment. Somebody asked on, on Twitter, I don't have an answer for this, when's the last time a major literary award went to an American war veteran? Because it, it might have been a, a long time. That's, that's not might a have been, demographic but, uh, that I Because yeah. a number of NBA about. winners have been veterans, mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. but actually I couldn't say for sure um, how recent. Yeah. So... I don't have that off the top of my head. Yeah, but Clay's collection is tremendous. Yes, as uh, as I as what, what I've heard. Yes, I have not read the book myself, um, but he certainly gave a really great acceptance speech last night. Um, he was funny as well, um, calling out the if to see if there were any other Marines in the audience. I think there was one other uh, <laughs> yeah, Marine there. Handful, I think. Yeah. Uh, he said two. Okay, I think we can take him. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> and uh, and I think he followed that with the really wonderful comment about you know war is you know too important to have to process alone. Mm. So, um, yeah, no, it was really, uh, it, it was really a terrific evening, unfortunately, you know, marred by, um, you know, the, the, the comments about Woodson, but, um, uh, certainly, uh, separate from those comments, most people, I think thought it, uh, Handler did a great job and it was a really good evening. Excellent. And, uh, we haven't talked about Evan Osnos's book, um, the, the nonfiction award winner. Um, mm -hmm. do you, do you want to tackle that one, Calvin? Uh, sure. Um, I know he, the, the book is on China, but what was certain resonated throughout the evening is that he's the son of Peter Osnos, the publisher of Public Affairs. Uh, he even brought that, uh, Evan even brought it up during his speech. Of course, you know, he's kind of a, a, a child of the book publishing industry, and uh, he, he thanked his whole family, and in some ways I guess he could have thanked the whole industry. Afterwards, I actually did see Peter in the audience. He could, of course, he was beaming. He couldn't have been prouder and i think that was probably echoed throughout the um, the auditorium because i mean peter osnos is a well-known figure in the book publishing industry i mean he's a mm -hmm. former uh you know foreign correspondent for the washington post you know uh who moved into book publishing and created a really unusual nonfiction publishing imprint with public affairs uh so uh it was really almost a community uh, award there i think the whole book industry was sort of kind of knew him knew his family so uh, that was another very warm uh reception to, uh, to the winner last night and claire you mentioned that um, osnos gave a shout out to his fellow nominees yeah, it's particularly, he singled out um, Roz Chass. Oh, yes, that's right. Yeah, who, he called her work beautiful and very meaningful. Um, and, you know, she sort of made history. She was the first cartoonist to be recognized in the adult categories. So it, it was nice that he made mention. All right. Well, it sounds like a very exciting night and with, uh, on the whole, some on positive whole. takeaways. Yes, on the whole. Absolutely. Well, I, I really hope Woodson can enjoy her award and yeah. enjoy going into stores and seeing that medal on yeah. the cover of her book. <laughs> I think that, that'll yeah. hopefully uh, yeah. Let, let's hope so, make for up sure. for a lot. Yeah. Well, thank you both so much for joining us. Uh, it's good to have both your perspectives and uh, an excellent recap of the National Book Awards. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us on. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Myra Kalman, author and illustrator of My Favorite Things, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We'll be out of town for the next two weeks, but you can still get your fix of Publishers Weekly Radio because we'll be rerunning some of our favorite author interviews from the archives. So check the site every Friday for some deep, outrageous, and delightful conversations. In the meantime, you can find this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and also on iHeart radio and itunes it's available for you to listen absolutely free check the site every week for the inside story on your favorite story thanks for listening you've been listening to publishers weekly radio show 